0: Good morning everybody. I love that we are talking about basketball today. That just fits well with my sermon. So, all right. So um, we're going to break into groups of three or four like we we normally do. But before we do that, I just wanted to put a a couple images up on the screen here. Uh, So go ahead and fire that up. And so take a look at these these guys and I want to interact with you guys a little bit. So there's several uh, common traits that these gentlemen share together. So if you want to raise your hand or just yell it out, what are some things that these guys all have in common? They're all athletic. They're all <laughs> basketball players. That's obvious, but still good for catching it. So, for those of you who don't know, we got, we got Kareem Abdul Jabbar here on the left. In the middle is Carl Malone. And then we all know Kobe on the right. So, what are a few more things these gentlemen all have in common? <laughs> Wait, one at a time, right here. Number one, number three, and like, or number two, and number three score. So, he's saying the top three scorers. You're actually dead on with that. Very good. You caught it. Uh, anything else these guys have in common? They're all Hall of Famers. I don't know if Kobe is yet, but obviously he's going to be. Um, there's there's one in there that, that we should all be getting here. Let's see here. I'll give you guys a couple more seconds before I give it away. They're all retired, yeah? My wife got it. I love that. That's cool. They're all Lakers, yeah? <laughs> so... Yeah, they're, they're all Lakers. And the, another thing they, they share in common, you got Kareem, Kobe, and Carl. They're, they're letter, they all start with the letter K. I thought somebody might get that. Uh, but another thing they all have in common is they're all Lakers, but none of them were drafted by the Lakers, yet they all ended their career as a Laker. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so I want to throw up one more, one more image for you. Uh, who's this, anybody? Michael Jordan. So when we throw a fourth person in the equation, now we have different uh, commonalities. So no longer, you know, Michael obviously doesn't start with K, it starts with an M. Uh, also, unfortunately, he never ended his career as a Laker, but that would have been awesome. <laughs> and, so, and so right here, let's go ahead and fire up the next slide because this is going to get onto a couple more similarities these guys have. Uh, go ahead and fire up the next slide because uh, this is pretty cool. So one thing about these guys, when you're surrounded by greatness, you're kind of given a nickname. And so we have uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was known as the captain, sometimes even called Cap. Um, Karl Malone was given the nickname the Mailman because he always delivered. I mean, he was a guaranteed 22 points and 12 rebounds every game. Uh, You've got Kobe who was given the nickname the Black Mamba. And that comes from actually a a Kill Bill movie. There's this deadly snake in there. And Kobe just had this assassin look about him when he played. He just had this intense, he was going to quietly take you out. And so he, he was given the nickname, the Black Mamba. And Jordan, he was known as Air Jordan because it was said that he actually spent more time in the air than he did on the basketball court, is, is evidenced by a lot of his you know, high-flying dunks. And so I want to focus on just one of these guys. Let's, um, but first, uh, we had someone guessed it right over here. So the next slide here shows that the biggest thing these guys have in common is they are, from left to right, one, two, three, four of your all-time leading NBA scorers. Uh, 38,000 plus for uh, Kareem and Jordan, you know, with 32,000, but yeah, so these are your top four all-time NBA leading scorers. And so let's go ahead, and I want to put our focus on, on Michael Jordan just for a minute, just because you can make a case for any of those four guys that they're on, like, the either the greatest of all time or, you know, possibly on what what's called the Mount Rushmore of all time for the greatest NBA players, but universally, it's still most widely accepted that it always comes back to Jordan. Most people are going to come down and say that he's the greatest of all time. So when you think of Michael Jordan, what are some words that come to mind? And just raise your hand or fire it out nice and loud. Space jam, jam. (laughs) all right. All right, what else we got out there? When you think of Michael Jordan, what, what words come to mind? Hang time? Baseball, all right. Six rings, yep, so six championship rings, so definitely a champion. The brand. the brand, yeah, he's a marketing genius. Uh, but yeah, so when you think of Jordan, you think of a, a champion, you think of winner, you think of of someone who is, you know, you want the ball in his hands when it's the end of the game, you know, he was very, very clutch. And so you see, Jordan, he achieved this certain level of success, and because of this, it's kind of wraps up as his identity and so this identity is based on things that he has accomplished throughout his career so like i said we're going to break into groups right now so let's go ahead and just look around you find two or three people we're going to spend a few minutes just answering these two questions the first one is what nickname did you have growing up or what is your nickname now and the second question is a little bit deeper it says when it comes to sin what is your biggest regret or regrets so go ahead i'll give you guys about three or four minutes All right, let's go ahead and wrap it up, you guys. All right, thank you. Hope you guys had some fun sharing those maybe possibly embarrassing childhood nicknames. And hopefully none of them are are stuck with you till today. So um, I had a nickname growing up and it wasn't very clever. My name is Jake. And in the 80s, there was this wrestler and his name was Jake the Snake. I didn't wrestle, I didn't even fight, nothing like that, but because Jake rhymes with snake, I was called Jake the Snake. So I still get that today, except now I get Jake from State Farm. So for some reason I'm always, a, you would not believe how often I get that, I mean, especially with you know, anybody probably 25 and under. The second I introduce myself as Jake, they're like, oh, wear your khakis. I mean, there's always a reference to Jake from State Farm, and I never wear khakis. So, um, but. So I want to open up from prayer here today, and, and we're going to start. We're going to start out talking. Um, we're going to kind of pick up from where we left off last week, and then we'll jump into a, a new chapter here in Romans seven. So let's just go ahead, bow your head, and let's open up from prayer. So, Father God, we just thank you that we can be here today, Lord. We just thank you. We love you. We're so thrilled that we can be in your house today. And God, I just, I just plead right now, Lord, that if there if there's anyone here today, Lord, who hears, who needs to hear this message, God, your word says that you actually seek out and go after the lost sheep. God, so if there's anyone here today, Lord, if there's that, if there's that one person in here that this, this message is just for them, Lord, we know that that's how you operate. You, you go out seeking for the lost sheep to bring them into your family. And so if that's you today, as, as, you, as you hear the words and you hear the, the scripture, if you feel like maybe you're that one lost sheep, just feel a little more special today that God is actually speaking to you today. And God, we just want to come to you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. I just pray that our hearts will be opened and we can actually receive uh, this word that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we talked about sin and how, how much fun sin can actually be. We talked about how we used to be slaves to sin and we talked about how we've been set free from sin. And we talked about how sin no longer has that control uh, over us. We actually have the freedom to choose to walk away from our old master. And so what do we do with that? Now that we have been set free, today we're going to focus on the ever-present struggle with sin. And we're going to learn how to become regret-free. And even though we're free from the power of sin, even though we have chosen life over death, there is still a struggle with our old self as we pursue righteousness. So today... We're gonna jump into Romans chapter seven. And chapter seven, it's really a carryover from chapter six. Remember that this is a letter uh, Paul wrote this to the church in Rome, and when he wrote this, he wasn't writing uh, chapters and chapter titles. You know, he would never write you know a title that says "released from from the law, bound to Christ." That's something that that we've added over the over the years. We've added the chapters, we've added the verses as a way to make it easier to reference scripture. And so, when we begin with chapter seven, the first six verses are actually it's still finishing the thought uh, from chapter six. If you remember from last week, we left off chapter six where. Paul is using the analogy of a slave uh, and a master, and so he's just basically starting off a new chapter today with with a different analogy, but it's kind of the same thought. He's going to use, instead of a slave and a master, he's going to talk about um, a husband and a wife, and so let's go ahead, if you have your Bibles or your your iPhones, go ahead and, and turn to Romans 7. It's also up here on the screen. Starting in verse 1, it says, "'Do you not know, brothers and sisters?' for i am speaking to those who know the law that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives for example by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive but if her husband dies she is released from the law that binds her to him so then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive she is called an adulteress but if her husband dies she is released from that law And is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. That's where we spent most of last week talking. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here Paul's making the connection that before Christ we were actually married to sin. And obviously understanding the laws of marriage, we would always be married to sin unless what? Unless we die. And Once you are dead, you're no longer bound to the laws of marriage, just like in slavery. If you die as a slave, you're no longer bound to that slave master. He can no longer force you to do anything. If you're dead, how can you obey that master? So in order to get new life, there needs to be death. Two weeks ago, Ken shared from Romans six. And in Romans six, verses six and seven, we see that our old self was actually crucified with Christ. Let's read here. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And so because we have been crucified with Christ and because of his resurrection from the dead, we've also been raised to life with Christ and we've been given a new life. But just because we have a new life and a new master and we are free from sin, being free from sin does not mean that we are sin-free. We are free from the bondage of sin, yes, but it does not mean we will never struggle with sin again. Let's take a closer look here. Let's jump back into verse 5. And in verse 5, it says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law. That sounds juicy, doesn't it? And a little bit scandalous. The sinful passions aroused by the law. When you read that, you almost think, is Paul implying or saying that the law is the reason that we sin? And we talked about that a little bit last week. We said it's almost like you didn't have the desire to sin until you knew that that was the rule or you knew that that was the boundary, and then something in you is triggered, and it makes you want to do that. Let's go on here to, uh, let's jump ahead to, uh, to verse 6. It says, "By now, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And verse 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? So you're looking here, Paul, he's actually anticipating that when people, that when the church reads this, that there's going to be an argument. They're going to say, well, it's not my fault, it's the law. If the law was never there, I would never be aroused and enticed to sin. And so Paul, he's bringing this as an argument. He says, is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. So we talked a little bit about uh, one of my things I deal with last week, and that was speeding. And so let's use that same example here. So have you ever been cruising down the highway and you feel like you're going a nice, comfortable, safe speed? You've got your, your favorite music going. Let's say you're doing 65, you know, whether the roads are straight or windy. You're just passing. You feel like you're doing you know, what is the speed limit? And then all of a sudden, you know, 5, 10 miles have gone, you haven't noticed the speed limit, and then there it is. You're doing 65, and you see speed limit 45. And the second you see that, all of a sudden something goes off, and now you realize that what you have just been doing is actually wrong. The whole time you're just cruising along, having a good time, being safe, but until there's something that says you're exceeding what is safe for this road, you don't really realize what you're doing is wrong. And that's kind of how the law works. Without the law, we are not aware that we were in sin. But once the law is revealed to us, it makes us aware that what we were doing, the life that we were living, is not right. And this is what we talked about last week. Sometimes once we know what the law is, once we know what the boundaries are, something in our sinful nature, it just gets triggered. and It makes us want to go on that. What's that saying that we, we all know? Rules were meant to be broken, right? The fact that, that, that our society has a saying like that, The rules were meant to be broken and that's something that i struggle with in my house because my kids will say that back to me they know that in our household i'm the rule breaker and my wife is the rule follower i'm the one pushing the boundary and saying well i know there's a little fence here but if they didn't want us to go over the fence they would have made it taller and my wife's saying no they clearly put that fence there to keep us on this side and so there's something in me that makes that makes me want to push the boundary and then lucky for her, there's something in her that always is realizing and seeing these signs and saying, no, if you do that, it's wrong. You know? And so uh, sometimes I just don't catch those signs or I just get excited the fact that I, I found a way around it. <laughs> Probably the latter. Um, so going into ver- <laughs> let's pick it up again in verse 7. We'll read that again here. In the middle of verse 7, it says, I would, have not, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law. Basically what he's saying there is before you knew the law, sin was a blast, right? Before you ever came to church, before you met Christ, All those things that you used to do and get away with, you didn't even realize they were wrong. So once you were alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, all of a sudden you realized the things you were doing were sinful. So sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? So Paul's just answering his own argument that he started with, is the law sinful or is this law the reason for our sin? So did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. So we see here how sin works. We're given a law which is put in place to protect us and to guide us, much like a speed limit. But sin seizes the opportunities and it actually uses our own shortcomings against us to condemn us and to cause us to feel shame and regret. Many non-believers, they actually want to accuse Jesus or accuse the church or accuse the Bible as being judgmental and pointing out everyone's sin. But if you take a closer look in Scripture, that's not what I see at all. When I see Jesus confront someone who's living in sin, I don't see Jesus throwing down the hammer or throwing down the Bible and bringing guilt and condemnation or shame. Instead, this is what I see. In, uh, in John chapter 8, there's a story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And basically what's happening here, Jesus, is, is he's appeared at the temple courts. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they, they're trying to trap Jesus. And they bring this woman to him. And they say that she was caught in the very act of adultery. So this isn't just some gossip, he said, she said thing. She was actually caught in the very act of adultery. And so they're trying to trick Jesus and trying to get him into a trap. So they bring her to him and they say, Jesus, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? So Jesus, said, I love this, is one of my favorite, uh, favorite parts in the whole Bible. Jesus kneels down and he, he starts writing in the sand. And there's a lot of debate on what Jesus is, is actually writing. But as he's writing in the sand, you start to see these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, all these people who were attempting to condemn her and wanted to see her stoned, they start walking away one at a time. A lot of people believe that, that possibly Jesus was writing some of the sins that they were guilty of, and that only Jesus could have known that. And Jesus, as he's writing in the sand, he says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stoops down, writes on the ground, and they begin to walk away until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. So Jesus understands what she's guilty of. She's caught in the act of adultery. She's guilty. Jesus, in verse 10, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I want to read through the next 11 verses uh, to close out this chapter, but I got to warn you, it gets a bit wordy, uh, so listen closely and try to follow along, and I tend to talk fast, but I'll try to slow it down here for this because it is confusing. So starting in verse 14, it says, We know that the law is spiritual, But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. We've already established that from his argument earlier. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. living in me that does it. We'll take a break right there because that's, that's a lot. And you, this is one of those passages you, ha, you have to read two or three times to really kind of understand what he's saying. And the reason it becomes so difficult to understand is he's just using some of the same words over and over. And be, he's talking about I. And so you, you hear him use the word I, I, I this, I this. And the reason it's difficult to understand here is he's referring to now, when he says I, there's times where he's referring to his physical self, and then there's times where he says I, and he's referring to his mind and his, his spiritual self. And who Paul is at this point in his life, Paul has given his life to Christ. He is a Christian. He is a new creation. And Paul firmly with all his heart believed that when you give your life to Christ and you, become a, you actually do become a new creation, and the old has passed away. But where this struggle happens is even though the old has passed away, we have this new spiritual mind, but where are we still presently trapped? We're still presently in this body until the day we die. And so as long as we're in this body, which is, which is carnal, which, which is flesh, it's going to experience and be around all those things that tempt this body. And so there's always going to be that struggle. So just because You've been set free just because your mind is clear, just because you want to achieve righteousness and holiness, and you're going through the sanctification process. You're still trapped in this body. So Paul, in no way is he trying to say, when he says, it's not I who sin, it's my body. His, this He's talking about his old self. And so his old self keeps creeping in because he's still trapped within his old self. And 21, it says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He kind of goes on this little thing here. And if you read this in 24, if you read this incorrectly, it it can sound like he's just kind of freaking out a little bit he says what a wretched man am i who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death and i think he's having a little little fun with this as he does in other other parts of romans where he says shall i do this and then his response is certainly not i think this kind of goes into that same that same kind of mindset so when he says what a wretched man am i who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death he actually knows the answer paul is not in distress here saying what a wretched man am i who can help me Paul knows the answer, and he gives the answer right here. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, and if it's easier to think, every time you see sinful nature, think of body, but in my body I am a slave to the law of sin. So I did a lot of study on this passage here, and I found one excerpt that was really good by John Piper, and we can put that up here, and it says... Because God has gotten a great and decisive and final victory over the forces of sin that take away my members captive, basically your body, I am now able to serve the law of God with my mind, even though at times my flesh gets the upper hand and takes me captive to serve the law of sin so that I do what I hate. I think what's real important here to understand is many Christians are going to have the same kind of frustration just as Paul. Many Christians, when they go through this, when they're like, I want to do good, but I keep struggling with this. I want to do this. They're actually going to start to doubt in their own minds their own salvation. Has anybody ever been there where you feel like, I know I gave my life to Christ, I've said the prayer, there was times where I was living on fire for God. We use those kind of terms where you feel like I was on fire, I was doing everything right, and then you keep resorting back to this sin. And you'll begin to even doubt your own salvation because they find this struggle within their own self. But what does this tell us? This conclusion actually tells us that people have this expectation that once they get saved, that everything is going to be all better, that there will be no more struggles with sin. And that expectation is just not true. I want to show you a clip that is going to help illustrate this point. But before I do, remember how we started out this morning talking about Michael Jordan and how his identity is based on what has been accomplished throughout his career? I think you may need to take a look at this. Top of the circle. Scott checking him out seconds remaining. Pippen will throw it in. Jordan is down in the paint being guarded by Worthy. Pippen must get it in. He does. And here is Jordan. Three seconds remaining and let's see what the call is. Jordan rimming the basket. The foul against Chicago. It's on Paxson. Now they have changed the clock. Two and seven tenths seconds left. Byron Scott took a shot in the cheek. And the Lakers will go to the line. Jordan got a real good look. That ball is halfway in and back out. And you could see the disappointment in Jordan's face after the ball was rebounded by the Lakers. Chicago ran this spread. Jordan thought that he had the step, then pulled up, and he just didn't like the balance he had on the shot, and you could tell as he walked off the floor. We'll be back with the five-minute overtime after these words. So do you realize that Michael Jordan has missed more game-winning shots than he's made? <laughs> it's funny how we don't remember him in that light, though, do we? We, re- we remember the game-winning shots. We remember those, those key highlights. I want to put up a, a picture of, of the four guys that we started talking about this morning here. One other thing they have in common. These guys are all on the top 10 list of missing the most shots in their NBA career. We've got here on our left, or let's start with Jordan on the right. He's sixth all time with the miss, misfiring on over 12,345 shots. Fifth all time is Kareem, he's missed. And this guy was tall, he was over seven feet tall. So the fact that he was able to miss this many times is shocking. He missed 12,470 times. Fourth all-time, Carl Malone, he missed 12,682. And I hate to say this, but our beloved Kobe, (laughs) who brought five championships here to LA, he's missed, he's number one on this list. He's missed 13,766 times. But when I put those images up this morning of these guys, nobody thought of these guys as losers. Nobody thought of them as failures. Nobody thought of them as as anything but heroic and warriors and champions and elite and the best of the best and winners and clutch. That's what we remember. And that's because in Christ, our identity is not founded on our failures. Our identity is founded on what we've overcome. I wanna talk about one more person here in closing. And this person had a pretty cool nickname too. His name was Peter, and Jesus gave him the nickname, The Rock, how cool is that? So Peter Peter was basically the Michael Jordan of disciples. Uh, he was definitely you know, on the Mount Rushmore, but if everybody's favorite disciple is usually Peter, maybe John, but everybody loves Peter. He, because he's like us, he flies off the handle, he's got a temper, when he sees Jesus being hurt, he wants to whip out a sword and cut off an ear, and, and it's, it, that's me, so I, I like Peter. <laughs> My wife probably likes John, you know, he just wants to be nice and kind and cuddly, you know. But I, I like Peter, you know, he wants he wants vengeance and he wants, he wants you know, God just call down all the angels, bring them down now. And th- this is Peter. And so Peter is the rock and Jesus gives him the nickname the rock because he says, on this rock I will build a church. He's basically t- telling Peter, the church is going to be built because of the statements of faith that you have made. So Peter, the Michael Jordan of disciples, but get this, after spending three years every single day with Jesus, who's the disciple who denies Jesus three times? How do you get to heaven? It's easy, right? You know Christ. You acknowledge him with your lips that he is Lord. And what does Peter do? He does the exact opposite. Three times. You want to talk about regret I mean, I can't. you see the look on Michael Jordan's face missing some of those shots. You can see the regret and the sorrow in it. Imagine your best friend for the last three years, the person that you've acknowledged as your Savior and your Lord, and when confronted that you know him and you're one of his disciples, imagine being able to say, no, I don't even know him. And Peter does that three times. I can't even imagine that kind of regret. Just imagine how horrible he must have felt. And so what does, Peter, what does Jesus do to Peter? Does Jesus condemn him? No, you know the rest of the story. After Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus actually reinstates Peter by asking him three times, do you love me? You see, it's not about what you've done, it's about what he's done. It's not about who you were, it's about who you are, and more importantly, whose you are. And in our Christian walk, Your identity is not founded on your failures. It's not founded on your past regrets. But your identity needs to be founded on what you've overcome. And we started out this morning talking about what we have overcome. We have overcome death. Let's go to Galatians 2.20. It says, And if you've accepted Christ into your life, then you have overcome death, for you have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, we just wanna thank you for your word today. Father, we just want to receive what you have for us now, Lord. Father, it's not anything that we've done, it's what you've done. You conquered death, and we just come along for the ride because we believe you did it. We believe you loved us, and we believe you did it for us. And we get to share in that death, we get to share in your resurrection. So Father, it's my prayer today that as we're always going to have this continual struggle because we are here on this earth living in a sinful world, living in a sinful carnal body and this sinful nature is still in us. Even though our minds have been set free and we are a new creation in Christ. God, I pray, it is my prayer that we never let anything from our past dictate our future because that has been put to death at the cross. Any of those sins that you think are too big any of those past regrets that you're holding on to that are keeping you from doing the will of God, I pray that you will let those go today. The price has been paid. The blood has been shed. There's absolutely zero reason to be living that way and holding on to a past regret. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples that we see, the way that you show love When others want to bring condemnation. Thank you, Lord, for how how we can look at, at Peter and say, well, if you can reinstate him, if you can forgive him, he with his lips denied you three times. I've never done that publicly. If you're able to love these people and reinstate them, I believe you can love me. So if you're holding on to anything today, as we close and enter into a time of response and worship, when you you approach the communion table, just take a moment. If you're holding on to any past regrets, I want you to leave them at the cross today because they've been paid for. Thank you, Father.